And you know what they call a, a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? I mean, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the f a quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it a Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. That's right. What do they call a Big Mac? Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. A Le Big Mac. <laughs> what do they call a Whopper? I don't know. I didn't go on a Burger King. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait You Haven't Seen. It's a show where we talk about movies and specifically we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host Travis aka TV's Travis. This is episode number 132 and our movie this week was Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. And Joining me to talk about it because he had never seen it before, Sean White. Sean, how are you doing? Doing good, 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 good. So, all right, first question I got to ask, how... How is it you never saw Pulp Fiction? Are you are you a fan? I guess the first uh, question would be: Are you a fan of Quentin Tarantino's movies? Have you seen his, some of his other stuff? Uh, prior to this, the only Quentin Tarantino movie I've seen was uh, Kill Bill. Okay, and uh, that I didn't really watch it intently. It was just kind of on the background. Uh, a long while ago, uh, I was watching it with my sister while we were on vacation probably like 15 years ago something like that okay uh but other, other than that i haven't seen any of his work all right all right um but you're i mean you can't you can't live in the u.s and not at least be somewhat familiar <laughs> with quentin tarantino and the fact that he does yeah. make a lot of movies his movies kind of especially pulp fiction has sort of woven its way into culture a lot there's a lot yeah. of references that you may not even have realized were pulp fiction references until you watch this movie yeah. Um, and that was that was one of the reasons why I even suggested this is because like throughout my life, you know, I when this came out, I, I was nine years old. Mm -hmm. So obviously I wasn't going to see it then. Right. And just never really thought about it until more recently. And, uh, the, the, you know, now I realize how much of kind of a cultural touchstone it is for us. Oh, it's sure. one of the reasons why I, I became interested in watching it. And I honestly... I had no idea what I was what I was supposed to expect in this movie. It's like I I knew basically none of the plot. I knew I like basically the only thing I knew about this movie were the memes. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, it, you that got was Travolta probably, kind of looking confused as yeah, he looks around. The but confused like, look, yeah. You, uh, you know, you don't you don't have any context for him either when you're just seeing the yeah. meme. So yeah. So that was that was one of the, like I. That was because I didn't know what to expect. I didn't really have any interest in watching it. And then you said, hey, drop me a line if you want to take part of this. And then I was like, you know what? I think now's the time. So, <laughs> Well, good, good. So it's an interesting movie in the fact that... Yeah, so to start, movie came out in 1994. Um, so I was, I was about 12 when this movie came out. Um, okay. 12, 13 years old. I did not see it right away. I saw it a few years later when I was in high school. Um, I saw it around the time that I saw his first film, Reservoir Dogs. Um, yeah. and if you get a chance, that's another, uh, I, I'm a Tarantino fan. I like all of his movies. I, I don't think he's yeah. made a bad movie. Um, some are better than others, but I don't think he's made a bad one. If you enjoyed this, I think you would enjoy Reservoir Dogs. Uh, it's, it okay. feels very similar. Um, what's funny is like, 
you know, we talk about how there are, it's sort of a cultural touchstone and there's things I was even seeing back in the mid nineties before I saw this movie, things that were referencing it at the time. And I didn't really realize it until later. One of the earliest adult swim on Cartoon Network promos was the, the conversation in the clip that I played to start the episode, but it was between Shaggy and somebody else. And they, instead of, uh, instead of like McDonald's, they were talking about different cartoons. So they talked about pound puppies and how they don't have pounds in France because they have the metric system. So they called them less puppies Royale, like stuff like that. (laughs) When I was, when I was that age, I didn't realize what that was. And then I see the movie a couple of years later. I'm like, that's really fun. Like then that becomes funny. It was already just a silly, weird thing to watch. And then it became even better. So even back then that was going on. Um, the cast in this movie is insane. I mean, I say that a lot on this show. It, It ends up being that I watch a lot of movies that have a great cast, but this cast is out of this world. Like every character just about is an actor that I recognize and that I love seeing, whether it's, you know, Travolta down to Peter Green playing Zed. Like, yeah. Or like I, I did like the little Steve Buscemi. Yep. That was great. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, I I reckon, I didn't recognize him at first, except I recognized his voice. I was like, I know this voice. Yep. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, Steve Buscemi doing the, the waiter. Yeah, Buscemi was somebody that uh, he had been in Reservoir Dogs a couple years earlier, so he came back to to work with Tarantino. Tarantino likes to work with actors more than once. Yeah, uh, Sam Jackson was in oh, has yeah. been in <laughs> almost every movie he's made at this point. He wasn't in Reservoir Dogs, and I think he wasn't in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I'm pretty was sure he, he was Kill in Kill Bill. He wasn't. No, I think yeah, he had. I, I, I don't remember. Yeah, now. I don't it's think it's been he was a few in Kill years. Bill. But like. You know, he, he, he goes to uh, certain actors often. Um, but this yeah. this cast in particular, this movie sort of revitalized the career of John Travolta uh, a second time because he had, uh, yeah. he had had it in 1989 with Look Who's Talking. And then he kind of went into a, a lull for a few years. And then this movie brought him back. Same thing with Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis had been sort of on a downturn. He hadn't had many hits although he was still yeah. very bankable internationally, which is why he got um, cast in this, partly. Yeah. The studio wanted him, but... Uh, and at one point, he was up for Vincent Vega, which... Really? I I don't dislike Bruce yeah. Willis. I can't see him playing that character. Not yeah, the same way. Yeah. Like, looking looking at it now, it's like, I don't think anyone could have really done it better than Travolta. He, like, that was... He was the character, so... Yes. Oh, and uh, Phil in the chat mentions that Sam Jackson was in Kill Bill. He was the drifter piano player um, in the church. Oh. So that's right. He had a small okay. role. Um, but Travolta and Sam Jackson, this wasn't... The the cast in this movie were not like unknowns and up-and-comers, really. I mean, they'd all yeah. done work. Even Samuel L. Jackson had been working for years in Hollywood, but this was what put him on the map. This is what made him... Yeah. And, you know, I had seen him a couple years earlier in... Uh, or a year earlier, I guess... Um, in Jurassic Park, but you know it would be several years before I saw this movie, and so I wouldn't have made that connection right away. Yeah, he, yeah, he wasn't really a lead in Jurassic Park, so no, he wasn't. It, not like it, he wasn't this, right? And and he he is probably my favorite part of this entire movie is Samuel L. Jackson as Jules, just the look yeah. of him, 
the the way he carries himself. Nobody yells like Sam Jackson. Nobody. The closest <laughs> yeah. I can get to is maybe Gene Hackman, but it's a different type of yelling. Yeah. Gene Hackman in his prime could yell in a way that would make you scared, but like Sam Jackson <laughs> has this presence about him and his voice is so because he doesn't have this deep booming voice. Like Ving Rames in this movie it doesn't have a huge part as Marcellus Wallace, but when he talks, his voice is so commanding. Yeah. And yet I'm more afraid of Jules in the scene where he's talking to Brett than I am of anybody else in this movie because he just is scary. Um, yeah. It's just uh, Sam Jackson. You got Travolta's great. Uh, Eric Stoltz as, um, you know, the drug dealer friend. And, uh, and yeah. pr- uh, Rosanna Arquette is in this uh, as his girlfriend. Like that, those scenes are fun. Uh, Uma Thurman is great in it. Um, yeah. You know, it's just just one after the other after the other. Even Christopher Walken in his one scene just <laughs> just nails it. That was just a weird scene. Just <laughs> it really like, was. It started off straight and then just like, oh, off that way near the end of it. But well, and it's it's, it's like, yeah, and it's funny because this movie is not short. It's like two hours and forty minutes long, somewhere around there. It's a, yeah. it's a long movie. It rambles. It goes on and on and on. It's very dialogue heavy as Tarantino does, but. And, and the scene with Walken in particular is something that you could say, well, you could cut that and you would cut, you know, five minutes out of the runtime and you might tighten things up. However, watching it again, what I realize is like that scene's important. It's weird. Well, yeah. It's way out there. But without that scene, Butch's motivations it, feel like he's just a crazy person instead yeah, of because giving. Because you wouldn't have the, yeah, you wouldn't have that context of what is why the watch is important is like everything that they had to do yeah. to get him the watch. They would lose that importance importance without that scene. Yeah. And, and not only would it have lost the importance, but like it would have lost a lot of the gravitas of why, like you could say, well, it was my father's watch and that's, there's the motivation, yeah. but that's not enough for him to fly off the handle the way that he does. But when we get that yeah. scene, just that one scene with Walken and that one bit of context changes everything. And that's something that this movie does really well. And I, I definitely have some, some thoughts on the writing of it, but I want to keep talking about the cast because it's like just one after the other Tim Roth, who again had worked with Tarantino previously on reservoir dogs. In fact, reservoir dogs actors that came back were, uh, Tim Roth, Steve Buscemi, um, Quentin Tarantino himself was in Reservoir Dogs, and then he comes back in, in this as Jimmy. Harvey Keitel, and uh, there was one, two other people that were in the diner that were part of Reservoir Dogs. Um, okay. One of them was one of the patrons, the long-haired yuppie guy is Lawrence Bender. He's one of the producers. He just, I think that actually is what he's credited as in the credits, too, because yeah. I, remember, I remember yuppie guy, something like that in the credits. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's... It's just it, like Tim Roth is great. And what's funny is you could have had him in just that opening scene of him and Amanda Plummer, and that would have been enough. But then his his performance in that final scene is really good. Yeah, it is. Um, by the way, Amanda Plummer, Christopher Plummer's daughter. Honey Bunny okay. is the daughter of Christopher Plummer. And I, I love that like okay. connection <laughs> for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, but it's just like... In, the movie is a collection of stories. It's not really a narrative thread that goes through it. It's more of an anthology, yeah. which I'm a fan of anthology storytelling. I like short stories um, quite a bit because I feel like 
I feel like you have more freedom in storytelling when you do that. You're not bound by a three-act structure, so you can kind of yeah. play around a little bit more with stuff. So you can have, I mean, the, the entirety of uh, the first scenes between Travolta and Sam Jackson is just them having a conversation and then showing up and taking the briefcase. That's it. There's no, there's not like a, yep. a story being told. It's just sort of a slice of life, a moment in time. And then you can just move on to something else. But then you like Tarantino does this great job of interconnecting everything in like the most random of yeah. ways too. And, and that's what I was probably the most impressed with in this was how all of these things could be taken completely separately, but the, and that's how they're presented in this nonlinear fashion, mm -hmm. but that eventually do, they all do interconnect. And if you really wanted to, I'm sure someone has already after, you know, 27 years that's been out, I'll have taken it, re-edited it. So it's in sequence. Yep. I'm sure someone's done that. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. but if you do it that way, you lose, I'll, you lose a lot of the surprise. You lose a lot of those just individual stories because mm -hmm. again, again, you're turning it into a narrative. Yeah. But yeah, that was probably one of the things I was most impressed with is that, that nonlinear storytelling. Yeah. And Tarantino is a huge fan of films first. Like before he became a director, he was just a film buff and he just loved to watch movies and analyze them and break them down. And, and he was a big, he was very much into foreign cinema. And so he brought a lot of that sensibility and that style into Hollywood with this type of like this movie, especially that sort of nonlinear storytelling that sort of change up things. This movie was a big, uh, influence of that in American cinema in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I like that because you're right. If you take these stories and you, and I think what I've read here and there is like, it's roughly that takes place over about four days in LA from, from yeah, the first, the the opening scene is like seven thirty in the morning on one day, and when Butch leaves town it would be the end of it, and that's like four days later, I think is what okay. I figured out the timeline. To yeah, because because yeah, they have the the opening scene. Of the diner takes place like halfway through the story. Oh, mm -hmm. uh, the first thing would be them in the car going to the to. Brett's apartment or whatnot. Yep. To get the case back. Then you have then you'd have the the Bonnie situation. Yep. I'll then after that is meeting with Vega, and then after that is would be the fight, the fight night, and then I'll is Bruce's character is Brett, sorry. Butch. Butch. That's right. I knew it was B, but yeah, I'll I'm terrible with remembering people's names. That's all right. Uh, <laughs> but uh, and then you have Butch's whole story of him escaping and and all that jazz. And yeah. So yeah, it, it would make sense. It would be like over the course of a couple of days. Yeah, and one thing that does give it away, Tarantino said in an interview years after the movie came out that um, there's the scene where uh, Vincent is complaining that somebody keyed his car to Lance. He's like, somebody yeah. keyed my car a couple of days ago. Well, Tarantino has gone on record as saying that Butch is who keyed his car. Hmm. And the the implication being that after they had their meeting at Marcellus's place, where he called him a palooka, oh. that Butch went out and keyed or, his yeah. car. And so that gives that us kind of the timeline of, okay, a couple of days later is when he took Mia out, which again, you know, 
goes on the timeline and all of that. Yeah. So okay, that that would actually make a lot of sense because I if it, that was intended to be a little bit more cl- clear in the movie, it it wasn't really all that clear to me. But now looking at looking at now, that does make sense that he probably would have been the one who would have keyed his car. Yeah, and I mean it's not like super clear in the movie. Um, yeah. But that was just Tarantino saying later on, like, yeah, basically Butch went out and keyed his car right after that. But what I like, too, in the nonlinear style that this movie is, is it actually sets up some of the own, its own things that pay off. So, for instance, when Butch goes back to his apartment and he decides, you know what, I'm getting away scot-free, I'm going to make the Pop-Tarts, and then he sees the gun sitting there on the counter. Yeah. What I like about that is that that scene there, then later on, like the next scene is the Bonnie situation, is sort of the next story. We yeah. now it, subconsciously, it's in your head, even if you if you don't necessarily recall it, that Vincent is kind of careless. You know, he set that thing down yeah. and went to take a dump, and just left yeah. it laying out there, as opposed to somebody who would you know take that with take them. It with them. So as soon There's as someone, turned, had, yeah. yeah. So as soon as he turns around in the car to talk to Marvin and he's got the gun pointed at him, like, again, even if you're not thinking about it, you're, you're sort of prepared for something is going to happen now that isn't going to go well. And, and it was funny when he, yeah, when I was watching through it, when I, when I saw that scene, cause my, my dad's a police officer or retired police officer. So gun safety was a huge thing in our house. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to see him turn around and have the gun on the oh, I know. The, the back of the <laughs> uh, car seat, I was my first instinct was like, that's a really bad thing to do. And not knowing what was going to happen next. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like a split second later, the guy's head's missing. And it's like, that's why. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, oh, by the way, Marvin, played by Phil Lamar, who looks like he's about well, 12 in this. Phil Lamar, yeah, if you was... don't like, if if you don't recognize the name, you've heard his voice in almost everything. Uh, half of Futurama okay. was Phil Lamar. Really? Um, yeah, Phil. Most of the background voices, and uh, he did Hermes Conrad was Phil Lamar, but also like a lot of the background voices are either Phil Lamar, Maurice Lamarche, um, a couple other people. But he he was on uh, Mad TV for a long time. He uh, he just recently was on a few episodes of. Uh, Supergirl on the CW. Um, okay. He's great. But yeah, he I, I forgot how young... I, I remember he was in yeah. this. I forgot how young he looked in this. Like He just looks like a baby in that scene. Yeah. Him and Frank Whaley, who was Brett. Um, yeah. And again, talking about kind of the, the casting and how they get even these little small parts with character actors like Frank Whaley as Brett. He's basically in the movie to say what and be on the receiving end of the abuse from... But he's there's something about him that's great. Peter Green as Zed, again, is one of those people that pops up in a movie. He was in um, The Usual Suspects as uh, Redfoot. He was in The Mask. Yeah. Um, he was the, the bad guy in The Mask. Okay. He's, he's amazing. I, I love seeing him and stuff. It's funny because every time I read uh, articles about movies and they talk about Peter Green, they talk about how nice of a guy he is. And I'm like, but he's so good at being a bad guy because he always plays yeah. these terrible characters. <laughs> um, but oh yes, uh, Phil, Phil Lamar is the voice of Samurai Jack. I almost forgot. Ooh, like, yeah, that's awesome. So I love the fact that they and this movie's budget was only like eight million dollars, 
And most really? of that was the casting. I think five million of that went to the cast. Oh, I I would not be surprised. <laughs> but it just it, it it amazes me that you can make a movie for that small amount of money that looks this good because it really does. Now it helps yeah. that it's set in L.A. and then they can yeah. shoot it in L.A. Um, I think Bruce Willis was probably the highest paid actor in it. Um, at the time because at the time he would have been the most bankable star that they had. Yeah, you know you got Ving Rhames. Fairly early in his career, uh, again Sam Jackson before he became Samuel L. Jackson, um, yeah, and and kind of all that sort of stuff. But it's just just one hit after the other, and I love the little the little vignettes. The stories are super fun, if not kind of at times almost difficult to watch. Like the stuff with Butch, that gets dark and pretty rough. <laughs> um, yeah. But yet, you can't really stop watching. Like, you're invested, you're engrossed in it. And you had mentioned before we started recording, pacing. It doesn't feel like two and out, yeah. almost two hours and 45 minutes of movie either. Yeah, it, it's like there were times when I was I was watching it, and it's like I I got to the I got to the, the last scene in the, the diner, and it was like, we're really we're already getting to back to the connection and it, like it felt like i had been watching it for maybe an hour and a half and it's like oh crap we're already two and a half hours in we're almost <laughs> over yep and it's like the pacing was really well done there and that's also a benefit of the like the, the anthology style of storytelling mm -hmm. because because you're telling separate individual stories that do end up interconnecting but in kind of weird separate ways it it made it easier to digest the whole movie. Yeah. Uh, and I think that helped with that pacing. So it didn't, it didn't feel like you were watching one, two and a half hour movie. It felt like you were watching a couple episodes of a series. Yeah. Which in COVID times, I'm sure everyone has gotten a lot of practice binge watching stuff. Yep. So it's very true. Yeah. So and, that and definitely helped. Absolutely. And that is a really, really good point because I think a two and a half hour single narrative yeah. is in some ways it's daunting because you, you get it in your head that it's going to be tough to watch and breaking it up into these small pieces. And then I like to, like, I love anthology movies and anthology series because I think that it gives you a lot of freedom for storytelling, but I also like an anthology movie like this, where we're going to take those stories and then just give them a very loose connection. So Butch's story is really completely separate from everything else, except that he has to deal with Marcellus Wallace. And yeah. that's the connection there. And then that lets you have Vincent Vega show up. It also is nice because it can keep your cast. You can tell these disparate stories, but you can have a, a side character like the hitman that gets killed by Bruce Willis can be a character you've already got. So there's, you know, from a filmmaking standpoint, there's an easy way to cut a corner there and not have to cast yet another person. Um, yeah. I really like that. But I also love the way Tarantino has this way of writing weird situations that just, for whatever reason, just tickled me. And <laughs> I remember seeing him in an interview talking about this, and it's one that's always stuck in my head where it's like you... You've got a guy, he's running from somebody and he, he busts out the window in a car and he gets in the car and he goes to, to hotwire it and he looks down and it's a manual and he can't drive a manual. Like, that idea is great. And you see that in here with like, uh, you know, 
Butch would have gotten away with everything except Marcellus came walking by with a dozen donuts and a cup of coffee. Like at that exact yeah. moment, at that exact and, corner. Like, is it is it overly plot contrivance and convenient? Yes. But a lot of stories in general, especially in movies, are are the exceptions. Like mm-hmm. they're the the thing the odd things that happen. They don't necessarily have to be plausible because you're trying to tell a story. And sometimes exactly. the implausible makes the story much better, and especially in this case. The one thing about that scene, though, that kind of was a little weird to me is if Marcella is really like this kingpin that he's being portrayed as, you'd think you'd have someone else get him donuts. Yeah. That was, I yeah. know that's kind of a random thought, but that was one thing I thought when I saw that scene. It's like, why is he getting his own donuts? But that's, yeah, that's and just what I was thinking. We don't have enough of Marcellus to know if that's just like what he's that's, like or not. Too. True. Um, I mean, I we, just... we only have a couple scenes with him, and in those scenes, he plays himself up. He's you know portraying the like seems to be this powerful kingpin type character, and uh, but we only scenes. So right, right. But you know, I just I love those moments. I love those moments where it's like this just random thing. Uh, the pop tarts. You know, he he gets to his house. He gets the thing. He knows people are after him, but he still takes a moment to make pop tarts because he thinks he's gotten away with it. Like yeah, I just, that, he that, yeah, he didn't see any evidence before the gun that there was anyone there. Yeah. So, so stuff like that just, just makes me laugh and, and I love it. And, and then you've got all these little like Tarantino isms, like uh, Lance is sitting there eating cereal and he's refusing to answer the phone. So it's just ringing in the background. And then his girlfriend's yelling at him because the phone is ringing and he's sitting there just eating his cereal. And you can tell he's just like, I am so done with people calling me at this time of night. And then you look over and the cereal is a box of fruit brute. And I don't know if you remember. I I noticed that. I noticed that too. It was like fruit brute. Yes. (laughs) It's like, because I, I'm, I love Halloween first of all. So I always Mm -hmm. also love the, the specialty count chocula stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I remember, I remember Fruit Brute. <laughs> I do too. I remember cause it was like Fruit Brute and Frankenberry and Frankenberry Blueberry. And, and yep. And then <laughs> Which Count actually, those, those should be coming out soon if they aren't already. Yeah. But Fruit Brute is one that never came back for some reason. <laughs> I know. I don't know why. There's too many berries. I, don't I know. guess. You got... I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but like Tarantino will do that. He'll put stuff like that in there or, um. He has his uh, his own product placements of things that live in his movie universe, like red apple cigarettes. So you hear, yep. you hear him buy a pack of those. By the way, a dollar forty for a pack of cigarettes. That that dates yeah, the movie that's... right there. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, like well, even in the chat, uh, Ace Jungle Ace of the Jungle is saying like eight million dollars is in nineteen ninety four is worth fourteen million today. Okay, so it's like. Still, so imagine yeah, inflation. But imagine a movie being made in the last year or two that has this kind of a cast, even not even uh, established like mega stars, but just no, you know, fairly known quantity names and people that have a good career. Yep. And it's up for it ends up being up for uh, for Oscars for best picture for best director for best screenplay, and it's made for a fifteen million dollar budget today yeah like that's insane to think about now yeah so yeah especially with all the like even just i'm sure i don't even know what the casting for like endgame was is probably like double the budget that they had just for the casting 
probably just for Robert Downey Jr. Oh, but, oh, uh, Don, well, yeah. Downey Jr. I know a lot of those deals ended up with like back end stuff, so they were getting money off of yeah. the, the grosses. Yeah. Um, but That's, yeah, uh, Downey Jr. Still, made more for one Iron Man movie than this in movie's entire budget. Easily. Yeah. Um, yeah. Big Kahuna Burger is another Tarantino thing. Um, yeah. And I love that too. Uh, this movie is also like endlessly quotable. Uh, and, and I, oh, yeah. the, the funny thing is I put up on Twitter, uh, you know, that I was watching the movie and I think it was actually Phil that responded saying, you know, you forget how good this movie is. And it's true. I've, I've seen this movie many, many times. I really, yeah. really like it. But every time I watch it again, I remember how good it is and how, yeah. how many of the lines I quote. And I don't even think about the fact that they're from Pulp Fiction. They're just part yeah. of like my thought process now and how well structured it is. The music too. I haven't even talked about that yet. The music in this movie, Tarantino's always been really good at putting pop music into his movies. Yeah. And that's another reason why the $8 million budget's pretty impressive in this, given the music that they put in here. Um, that gets harder and harder every year. But yeah. not only is he masterful at putting the right song in the right moment, for instance, the, the twist dance scene, which I love. I think it's great. Uma yeah. Thurman didn't think that was the right song to play. She didn't like the, you know, um, the Chuck Berry song that they chose. And yeah. Tarantino's like, trust me, it'll work. And it's perfect. Like that song is just great. Um, yeah. But then he's so good at not playing music and not over, like over mixing a scene to where, the scene with, we've talked about it a few times, with Sam Jackson and Brett, uh, Jules and Brett, there's no music in that entire scene. Yeah. It's just dialogue. The stuff with uh, Marcellus and Butch when they get taken and they're down in the basement, there's no music. And then when the music starts up is when Butch is kind of making his escape. Yeah. But then when he comes back, the music stops again when it gets real heavy and like there's something about the way he chooses when to use music and when not to make scenes more effective and more memorable you remember everything jewel says because there's no music to distract you from it there's nothing telling you how you should feel in this scene it's the dialogue yeah. that's doing that for you and i th i don't know i don't know where i heard it before but it might have actually been on here but uh one thing that was kind of a sign of how good the the use of music was it was i didn't even i don't even remember where the music was it's mm -hmm. like it it was that seamlessly placed into the movie yeah. that it just became part of what i was watching that like because i like all those things about the music that you said just like i don't actually recall any of the music <laughs> because it's like probably because like i said because it is so seamlessly placed in those scenes that it mm -hmm. just kind of almost subconsciously gave you the mood that he was looking for. Yep. Um, but, and that one other thing that I wanted to, to mention real quick also about this is uh, that impressed me was the dialogue itself, mm -hmm. because I think one of the reasons why I, it took so long for me to watch this is because I have, I, I don't like gratuitous cussing all the time. Okay. Yeah. And, and there, there is granted a lot of F bombs in this movie. You know, it's, I think it's, it's something Tarantino. in the neighborhood of 248-ish or so yeah. F-bombs dropped. Yeah, but one thing that's odd that I think I just realized now is, like, I didn't have, I don't had pretty much no problem with it this 
during my watch through. And I think it's more, it's less so because of the actual language and more so because in a lot of cases when it's gratuitous, it breaks up the dialogue. It mm -hmm. just makes it sound, it breaks up that pacing. Somehow he managed to make the, the swearing, all the F-bombs in this conversational to the point where it just flowed so well. It was like a normal conversation and it didn't have those breaks. So that I think that's partially one of the reasons why I didn't have an, like any issue with my with all the swearing in this. Sure. This, uh, no, I I completely I, mean, I can get that because yeah. One of the things one of my first notes when I was taking notes watching it this time around is conversations in a Quentin Tarantino movie, especially for me in uh, this one in particular, and also Reservoir Dogs. Uh, I feel like has a lot of these he writes conversations in a way that feels like two people actually talking and not two people reading lines back and forth. Yeah. So there's that's, something that, that's very difficult to do. It is. It's difficult to get the wording right, but then also the cadence and the pacing, right? And he gets, he, that's the director. So him being the writer and director helps because he knows yeah. how he wants to hear the words and then to work with his actors and find that rhythm to where people can have these long drawn out, like, there's a there's a moment where Mia talks about um and I actually have the clip but it's she uh what is it uh Vincent says well you have to promise not to get offended and then her response is whoa 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 hold on now I can't do that because what ha you know my natural reaction might be to get offended and if I say I won't get offended then I do then I've broken my promise and it feels really wordy but when you're listening to it you realize no that's that's just how people that's, talk like yeah I completely get that. So that's one of the things a Tarantino's strength is he has this ability to uh to write dialogue in a way that can Seems feel natural. Yes. Yeah. And and because of that, even with the harsh language that his characters use, including not just dropping F bombs, but uh N slurs as well. Yeah. Somehow he can he can put that in and it doesn't feel like it feels wrong to hear it. Jimmy in particular as a character his first scene it feels wrong, but in a different way than when I've heard that utilized in other contexts. I don't know if I'm even saying that right or not, but there's something in the way he writes it that works. Yeah. So yeah, his his yeah, writing, I, that's a good point. It's texture to the dialogue instead of somebody trying to be edgy. Because there has been a lot. Yeah. The, Tarantino influenced a lot of filmmakers, and this movie in particular influenced a lot of people. Whether it was Doug Lyman making Go a few years later or Troy Duffy making The Boondock Saints. The, the, you know, both of those are very uh, Tarantino and Pulp Fiction in particular uh, inspired movies but there's something about the way Tarantino does it that just seems like it's on a different level. And I don't know if it's the yeah. time he takes in writing a movie and the time he takes in making the movie. Um, Cause he doesn't pump movies out every, every year or two. He takes his time in between them. He's talked about his next movie being the last one he directs, which will be interesting yeah. if he does or not. I mean, he's made enough eventually, money. Eventually I'm sure it will be, but yeah, I don't believe him, but I'll, but yeah, just like even going back to kind of the comparison between this and like Boondock Saints, mm -hmm. it's like I definitely I've watched Boondock Saints and the dialogue in that doesn't feel the same way. It feels like you were saying it's like or, uh, Phil Rude was saying that it was trying to be edgy rather than just having a conversation, mm -hmm. even though it probably had fewer F-bombs than 
than Pulp Fiction. Oh, so it's just, yeah, just, it's, again, it's really weird, because this whole movie in general, you know, I had this expectation that it was like, okay, there's going to be a lot of F-bombs, and it's going to start to make me feel uncomfortable and everything. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a lot of violence. There's going to be, you know, possibly sex and all this stuff. I had these preconceptions of what were going to happen in the movie, and what was most impressive to me was, yeah, there was violence. Yeah, there was a lot of F-bombs. There was implied sex and except for you know one scene oh mm. uh, but oh uh, but it wasn't nearly as bad as i was expecting it to be mm-hmm. in the like in, to the extent and again like i probably with the with the exception of the swearing there was a lot of swearing obviously but again the way it was written the way it was presented it was much more conversational it felt like a conversation two people actually talking rather than just trying to be colorful for no reason yeah so yeah it's impressive that tarantino can create kind of this hyper real uh hyper reality of a world where but yet all the people in it feel like real people and not kind of like they're bordering on cartoon characters but they're not quite cartoon characters yeah and that again that's a directing and a writing thing where it's it's our world, but it's not quite our world. And it's just off enough that you can say, well, it's a movie. But then everything yeah. in the context of it feels like it belongs in that world. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, there like. wasn't really anything that that felt out of place in the oh, like even like the probably the one thing that was felt most out of place to me was Vincent leaving his gun on the counter because that's just stupid. Mm-hmm. But that even that that is oh uh, like kind of ties into his character. He like you were saying he's he's sloppy. He's reckless. So he's pro- he thinking it's like okay you know whatever this guy is not here. I should have plenty of time. The likelihood of him coming by here is probably low anyway. Right. So it's, uh, whatever you know I gotta go take a crap. And of course we saw how that happened or what happened after that. Oh, uh, which that also. Another random point. I was actually impressed by how few main characters died in this. It's for, like I was expecting. Yeah, for as violent a movie as it gets a reputation for, and as Tarantino can make. Yeah, it's I mean, like the only like primary character that died was Vincent. Yeah. In fact, and it's that, got a very low body count in general. When you really think yeah. about it, there's. So you get. Brett, his friend, and then um, Alexis Arquette, the one with the hand cannon. Yeah. Those three all get it. Uh, Vincent gets it. And I'm trying to think who else gets killed. I guess technically if you want to go with the boxer that Butch kills in the ring. Yeah. Although that... And then Marvin eventually. That was ancillary. Yeah. But that was that was off screen and not really on the screen. So then Marvin. So you're looking at five-ish bodies. Uh, yeah. And then and then uh, Zed and uh, and Maynard, those two. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because Zed doesn't technically die on screen, but he doesn't. The rest of his life is not a whole lot of fun for him. Yeah, and he is in an immense <laughs> amount of pain uh, for it. So yeah, and, and it's like also in that respect, probably the one thing I keep on saying the one thing, the one thing. I mean, there's a lot of things in this, obviously, but. Uh, Another thing that kind of surprised me was, oh, uh, especially that that last scene in the diner. 
definitely did not go the way I was expecting it to. <laughs> yeah. Honest, honestly, like as soon as as soon as they start, like it's established that this is the same day, this is the same scene. I was expecting Honey Bunny and Pumpkin to just be dead. I was expecting they're 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 done, mm -hmm. and I I actually really enjoyed the fact that that's not how it went. That there was this almost like sudden redemptive arc to Jules's character. I actually really liked that. They yeah, you know he had that he had all uh, or and that last thing I I thought there might have been well no you're sorry starting to trying to remember where the timeline's going because uh, yeah because we knew that vincent and jules made it out of there because they were alive to meet vega which takes place after these events yep yeah they they meet marcellus afterwards so they make it yeah. out of the diner yeah so we knew that so we knew somehow they made it out it's like I, again i was just expecting them to just just kill them flat out and i'm actually kind of impressed and glad that that's not the way it went yeah, and and you mentioned you know uh, Jules getting a bit of a character arc. He really does. He because the Jules that was the Jules from seven thirty in the morning that same day, which we saw at the beginning of the movie two and a half hours earlier. He would have just without a thought killed both of them and they'd have left. Yeah, and that would have been the end of it. And it's just that one that one moment was enough to flip the switch for him and change the entirety of that scene. So yeah, I, I do enjoy that. Um, you know, and JF Dubow in the chat is saying that he always looked at, uh, always thought of Tarantino's characters as very cartoony. And I get that. I guess what I'm saying is like in the context of the world that they exist in, they're not, they had, they, they can be. And I think that, I think that as Tarantino went on as a writer and a director, it actually, he, he went more and more in that direction. And he became more and more stylized. As you, if you watch more of his movies, they take that that same idea that started in this, and it just sort of becomes. It keeps cranking the volume up just a little bit every time. Yeah, because um, there are definitely like very cartoony characters he did later on. I just feel like I feel like these characters are bordering on that. They haven't quite turned it up to an eleven yet. They're kind of sitting at an eight and a half or a nine. Yeah. Um, and also, it's it's in context with the world they're in. Mm -hmm. uh, like it's almost like a dream. Like ev when you're in a dream, everything makes sense. Even though when you when you're out of the dream, and you're trying to explain to someone, just like this is actually really dumb. It's like it's kind of that kind of context as well as in that world that they're in. It doesn't feel cartoony. But if you tried to take those characters out of that world and put it into our own, it probably does feel very very weird, very cartoony. Oh. Uh, yeah. 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 Plus the look of people like, uh, you know, Jules with his Jerry curl, which yeah. definitely was not the style in the, in the mid to early nineties. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's one. Another thing that kind of threw me off is like, what decade is this in? <laughs> <laughs> so it's definitely like early nineties, uh, yeah. LA. And what was funny about the Jerry curl was, um, I guess originally his character was written to have a great big Afro and they went and, you know, the prop department and costuming, uh, costuming went out, got a bunch of wigs, they put them on and they ended up with a bunch of Afro wigs and then this Jerry curl. And that was the one they fell in love with. And yeah. honestly, it works better. I think that I think so too. It's a more memorable look for him to have that. Yeah. So, 
like that worked. You've got Vincent who's got this like long hair and kind of Elvisy thing going on. In fact, there's a deleted scene where they mention him as being an Elvis man. Um, yeah. Cause there's a, there's a deleted scene with Mia where she says basically everybody falls into two camps. They're either Elvis fans or the Beatles fans. And Vincent is definitely an Elvis fan. And then with that context, you look at Jules as a Beatles guy because he calls Tim Roth's character Ringo. Yeah. So I don't know. I, yeah, I just, makes sense. Uh, the, the movie itself, I can understand I have talked to some people who have watched it that are that are younger than I am that didn't get what I did out of it and I I can kind of get it because it can be difficult at times to sort of work yourself into the mindset to to watch a movie like this but I do think that I think I mean, it's it, an, it took me 27 years yeah yeah <laughs> I I think that it's an important movie to watch if you're into movies at all because I think that it it does a really great job of kind of showing what movies can do and what they can be. Um, and I just, every time I watch it, I feel like it gets better for me. And I don't know if some of that is nostalgia. I, I It's hard for me to say, but I just feel like this movie is, it, if you're into movies, this is something that you should watch at least once. Yeah, again, yeah, again, this is one of the reasons why I suggested it is because even though, you know, on the surface, it was wasn't really a movie that uh, I thought that I would have liked. I knew that it was like I said earlier, it's a kind of a cultural touchstone for for us right now. And and I I I saw the importance of it. So I was just like, I got to watch it at least once. And uh, even if I don't ever watch it again, which having it watched once, I probably actually will watch it again. I'll not necessarily right away, but. I'll probably down the road I'll watch it again just to to revisit all these things because it's just it is a fairly unique style. I mean, that's one of the things that put Quentin Tarantino on the map mm-hmm. is the fact that he does things differently. He the way he tells the stories is differently, and even the stories themselves are different. Um, so I recognize that, and that's one of the reasons why I, I suggested it. So, yeah, and. You know, if you get a chance, I do, like I said, I recommend, I recommend all of his movies, honestly, but if you like this, I think you would like Reservoir Dogs because it's sort of a, a proto version of what he was going to end up doing with this. It's a little more of a single kind of narrative that he's broken up into pieces as opposed to kind of completely disparate stories. But I think it's a, it's another really good one. And it's got all the classic tropes of a Tarantino film with the dialogue. One thing I noticed in this that. I send, I tend to forget until I watch it are his dialogue is always great. His writing is good, but he has a lot of long takes in this and yeah, not just long takes. He has long takes with dialogue that, that whole conversation between Jules and Vincent about foot massage is a single take going down that hallway. Yeah. That's impressive to do. That's a lot of dialogue to remember. Yeah. I'm I'm kind of wondering how many takes it actually took to get that in one shot. Because would... of course we only we see the one that works. How many <laughs> of them didn't? Right, that's true. But I and it, it's not t- the only talking one. about a yeah. It's like another another long take that was like was a little off putting at like watching a little bit was the uh, the one with Bruce Willis when he's when Marcella or is it Marcella or Marcel? I keep Marcellus. Marcellus. Okay. Again, sorry, I'm terrible with remembering names. Sorry. Um, 
when Marcellus is talking to him about the fight and everything, how he's, you know, all that, the pride talk and everything. Yep. And it's literally just showing Bruce's reaction or Butch's reaction yeah. to that whole conversation. And it's like, seriously, a good, like, what, three minutes of just one shot of him? Yeah. Yeah. And it's Not something even like... like 36 seconds before Bruce Willis even says anything. And the shot is only yeah. him. Yeah. And that, like, somehow that one, I'm sure it was only a couple minutes, if that. Mm -hmm. It felt like an hour sometimes. Oh, Just, sure. like, it was, I think, but I think that was part of the intention was to make you feel uncomfortable about the situation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, it, it, there's there's a lot of that kind of stuff in this where shots that you would normally think to, like, typically in filmmaking, you would want to have coverage of a shot like that. And you would have... Yeah, you would want it back and forth. And... Back and forth. You'd be over one shoulder, then you'd be over the opposite shoulder, and you wouldn't break your 180-degree rule and all that kind of stuff. But to have it all focused on just Bruce Willis, just Butch, so that we don't see Marcel... That whole scene, we don't even see Marcellus. Like, yeah. you just see the back of his head. It's uh, it's brilliant. Plus, this this movie had probably one of the most famous MacGuffins in film ever, which yeah. is the briefcase. Yeah, uh, and I, I think it adds to it the fact that you never actually see what's in there, just that it's this glowing gold thing. Yeah, and we'll never know. <laughs> Tarantino won't ever yeah. say what it is. Uh, there's a million and one fan theories as to what's in that case. Um my favorite is probably that it's Marcellus Wallace's soul in the case um, because of the Band-Aid on the back of his neck and the fact that the soul is supposed to come out the back of your neck. Uh, but the funny thing about that, that yeah. is the Band-Aid <laughs> on the back of his neck is just because he cut himself shaving that day. And so they put the Band-Aid on and went with it. But I've seen what's in the briefcase in a behind-the-scenes picture. It was just a light reflecting off some gold foil. That's all it was. But I, I love, yeah, I I love that... Much. Uh, I love that they don't ever tell you what it is, that everybody has kind of a similar but different reaction to it. But it's a perfect MacGuffin because it only exists to move the plot along. That briefcase yeah. only exists to move the plot along in the Brett scene and then in the diner. And outside of that, it has no relevance whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it doesn't really matter what was in it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It, just, it, was, it was just the, like you said, just those into, those two scenes to show... Okay, this is something important, obviously, but it doesn't really matter what it is for yeah. the, the sake of the story. Exactly. So, but I, I'm a fan of that because I just, I like when a MacGuffin is used in that way. Like a lot of times the MacGuffin is there and it pushes the plot along, but it's always something that people are trying to get and you know what it is. And I like, a, I like the fact that this one is just something you don't know. And, yeah. and that in a two and a half hour movie, it's only in two, basically two scenes and the rest of the movie is just not there. So it's, yeah. it's kind of fun it's stuff just, like that. Well, it's the briefcase is there, but it's just ancillary. It's just being carried. It's yeah. not opened or anything like that. But yeah, those are the only two scenes of significance that it's in. Um, a couple other kind of fun things was, um, uh, one, you can tell this movie is set in the nineties because everybody smokes and everybody's smoking indoors and in restaurants. Yeah. Um, that and the the cell phone bricks. Yeah, oh yeah, those two. That that was that thing was pretty great. Um, yeah, Jackrabbit Slims was a the that's the um, the fifty style diner restaurant that they go to was the most okay. expensive set that they built because they kind of had to build it from scratch. 
Um, okay. And it's big and it's sprawling. It's got that wonderful long take as they go all the way around and get to the car and kind of all that stuff. Yeah. Which was really cool. I want that. Like, I want to go there. I love that that idea. And I love the idea of, like, yeah. you've got Buddy Holly and Marilyn Monroe and when they're, uh, when they're ordering. Yeah, apparently Marilyn Monroe is much better than Buddy Holly. So just remember that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I like too how when they're ordering, like Buscemi, Steve Buscemi is great. He's in the movie for all of like a minute, um, but he, you know, he just plays that part perfectly. Like he's got that great deadpan delivery. But then as they're they're ordering stuff, and Vincent's apparently never been to this place, yet he doesn't yeah. even bat an eye when they're at the way that they order things. Like, uh, I have a steak. Well, do you want that burnt to a crisp or bloody as hell? Uh, bloody as hell. You know, it just moves right along with it. Yeah. I, I loved the uh, the $5 shake, which obviously these days isn't much. But in 1994, $5 yeah. for a milkshake is a lot. When a pack of cigarettes yeah. costs $1.40, a $5 milkshake is pretty crazy. Um, yeah, that would be like, here, have a $35 milkshake. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I liked, too, like even that was a subtle thing that he asked him if she or he asked her if she wanted her milkshake uh Martin and Lewis or Amos and Andy and that was asking do you want vanilla or chocolate okay i and, actually did not get that reference so, so Mar- uh, Martin and Lewis Dean Martin Jerry Lewis and then Amos okay. and Andy was the Amos and Andy show okay and so yeah i think yeah that one that that's just on me but well yeah, that's I just a reference that. like <laughs> the thing is anybody under the age of 35 it's hard to imagine somebody knowing who amos and andy is let alone martin lewis so hey that but like that's those are those are tarantino type things that he throws into stuff that is um you know even having things like uh what was it jules saying you know we're cool in the gang for for we're cool like the slang that they use um throughout the movie is just it's so it's fun. And I think that's what balances off the horrible things that are going on at the same time. Because, you know, we talked about the, the language being pretty rough and, um, there's violence in it, but there's also heavy drug use. Oh yeah. Um, really heavy drug use. The, the scene with, uh, when Mia takes the baggie out of his coat (sighs) and it's like, I mean, it was like, this is not going to end well (laughs) at all. It's not like, yeah. And and again, it's set up earlier when he gets so so. Vincent is a smackhead. He's a heroin addict, and yeah. he buys his heroin. And when he's buying his heroin from Lance, Lance is like, "Hey, I'm all out of balloons. Is a baggie okay?" And it's sort of a throwaway line until you realize, for Vincent, it doesn't matter because he's not ever yeah. going to confuse his heroin with cocaine. But you know, yeah, Mia. If someone... Mia pulls a balloon out of that pocket she being kind of connected into that scene, she's probably going to realize that's heroin. She pulled a baggie out and sees just a white powder in it and assumes it's Coke. And ugh, I mean, I'm, as soon as she pulled that out of there, I, you, you just, you're white knuckle in it and you're like, Oh yeah, oh, this, no, like, this isn't going to go well. No, it was like, yeah, that was, that was a little rough to watch because it's like, yeah, just knowing it's like, Oh, this is, and also not because again, not really, we don't really see her any other part of the movie, so we don't have that context of whether or not she survives. So, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, again, one of those situations where I thought, oh yeah, she's dead, she's just gone. <laughs> it's right. Like, right. Yeah, and, we haven't seen her yet. And, so, yeah. 
And also, I don't think that's necessarily how an adrenaline shot is supposed to work. Probably not. Uh, Although I, I am not a doctor, I don't know. What I do yeah. know is the the shot of her reacting to the overdose. Is, that is one of two shots in this movie that is the roughest thing to watch because it holds on it for so long. Yeah. And you you're, can... like you're in it and you, yeah. you're getting this visceral, visceral reaction to what's going on on screen. And all it is is Uma Thurman's face. Yeah. And that's, that was another reason why I thought, okay, she's, we're watching her die right now. Mm -hmm. It's like, she's just gone because they hold on her for so long to the point where like her eyes roll back and everything. And it's like, well, that's, that's the end of her. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. And yes, Phil Rude, that's, that's part of it. The being administered by junkies in the middle of a filthy living room four, <laughs> but, uh, also, uh, just, I'm not sure how that adrenaline would be the only thing that would be needed to help her. Uh, cause she's still got drugs in her system and, uh, they're probably wreaking havoc, but probably. Uh, I'm just, I'm just assuming that would be enough to get her awake, but not necessarily just, Oh, I'm fine now. Yeah. She's, she's fine enough to go home and Marcellus not ask any questions later. Yeah, pretty much. But you know. We have a we have our great little touching moment between the two of them, and then uh, then Vincent heads home. Um, yeah. And what I like is we do end up seeing her in an, in another scene, and we know that she's okay. After oh, that's that. right, she's. But that's prior, right. but prior yeah. to it, we didn't know. Yeah. Um, I also think it's interesting when you have a husband and wife characters that don't share like they share one scene Marcellus and Mia and that's when Mia comes up when he's on the phone with Jules at the at the pool but they don't interact they don't talk to each other in the entirety of the movie yet their relationship is a central focal point to a lot of the dialogue that's going on so it was yeah. you know that was another thing i you notice and it's like oh that's interesting huh i wouldn't think about doing that but there's a lot of those moments in this movie. I just think this is a movie. I'm really glad that you got to finally watch it, and I'm hoping yeah. that maybe it'll it'll kind of open up some more Tarantino stuff for you because again, Reservoir Dogs is really good. You've seen Kill Bill, yeah. Um, Inglorious Bastards been in a while, yeah. Inglorious Bastards. If you like the tension of the scene between Jules and Brett, and how that's kind of played out, and how it's just dialogue, and it's and there's that just that con continuously ratcheting tension, the opening yeah. of Inglorious Bastards is, is that done better? Mm. It's, it, okay. like, it's worth watching the rest of the movie just for that opening scene in Inglorious Bastards. So definitely recommend that. I've, I've enjoyed every movie of his. Um, and yeah. I, st I do still need to watch Jackie Brown. Unfortunately, that one I missed, but I've seen everything else and it's all, it's all really good in my mind. Um, so it's definitely, well, but I'm glad that you watched this and I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I think that was yeah. kind of the biggest thing. I was I, really looking forward to talking with you about it, but I was really hoping that you would, you would have come away with like at least some of the, some of the appreciation that I have for it. Yeah. And like I said, honestly, before I started watching this is like, I didn't know what to expect. And well, to a certain degree, I was expecting not to like it that it would be like either too much swearing, too much violence, you know, all these things that I've been kind of adverse to for pretty much growing up in general. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think, again, the way that it's delivered was just very, very well done in general. 
and also to a lesser degree i think i've kind of gotten a little bit more tolerance for this sure uh, for swearing and violence and all that stuff for the last you know however long but yeah i actually i actually really enjoyed watching it and I, like i said at first i was going to do it just to you know say i did it i watched it i know what it's about and everything and i was honestly just going to leave it at that and probably never go back to it again having watched it the first time i probably will watch it i, I probably will watch it again watch which what, what was it about to say there i'm not sure but you know hey it, it happens <laughs> happens yeah. to us all no it's one of yeah. those things where it it the subject matter in a less skilled hand is not yeah. enjoyable to watch and yeah. we've seen less skilled versions of this and all the there there have been things that have been influenced by it that are great and there have been stuff that has been influenced by this where they missed the point and they missed the yeah. plot it's sort of like pulp fiction falls into the category of a movie like the matrix where the matrix influenced so much and changed things in movies in american movies and you can see that influence in so many things but you can really tell the stuff that that got the point of the matrix and and yeah. ran with the right parts of it and didn't saw is another one i talked about this recently with somebody the first saw it's a really well done horror film. It's not a torture porn in the way that a lot of people kind of lump it into. Now the sequels fell down that rabbit hole, but they yeah. sort of missed what worked taking like what works about Pulp Fiction. Isn't that it is a bunch of swearing and edgy content and violence and guns. It is. Yeah. It's the interplay between the characters. It's the well-written snappy dialogue that feels like real people talking. And it's the charm of those characters getting, coming across on the screen and the chemistry between them. You you honestly believe that Jules and Vincent are friends and they get along really well. Yeah, I, I think that that first scene was to kind of establish that they're like a, a working married couple, basically. That mm -hmm. almost... Oh, yeah. So... Yeah, absolutely. And and then you have, you know, even small moments like, like having the wolf show up and just that character. He's sort of a cartoon character, but in this world yeah. it makes sense. So... Yeah, It's one of those where it's like there's so many moving parts and there's so many bits and pieces that make Pulp Fiction work and what you find with some of the things that were influenced by it don't do it as well because they missed the parts that worked and they, they, they focused on the wrong aspects of it. Yeah, they focus on the content rather than the context. Yes, I think. and I think context is hugely important. So, oh, yeah. And also uh, execution. Well, yeah. When you can write dialogue <laughs> the way that Tarantino does... And anytime he his his directing style also uh, pops up. That's why um, you know the the episode of CSI that he directed. You can tell it's directed by Tarantino if you're a fan of his, because when you watch it, you yeah. see his fingerprints all over it. He has a very unique style that he does, and I just I'm a big Tarantino fan. I'm glad I got to show somebody else some Tarantino, and they liked it. That's always fun for me. That's yeah. that's why I love doing this show. I love showing people a movie and getting getting to have. I kind of get to live vicariously through you getting to see this for the first time because I can't ever watch it for the first time again. Yeah. So for me, that that's pretty fun. Um, and I want to say thanks for coming on and for watching this movie oh. and, and coming on to talk with yeah. me about it. Cause it's been great. Um, I do have a couple of, I have to play a couple of clips because again, I talked about sure. how quotable this movie is and jewels for one. Um, you this can is, just, you could cut fill up an entire episode of just jewels quotes. I'm sure. I mean, honestly, yes, you could. Uh, like, this is, 
I use this line or a v variation of it all the time because it just, for whatever reason, just tickled me. It was, you see the size of that gun he fired at us? It was bigger than him. Like anytime somebody's using some large, like a large sword or a large, it's, it's bigger than him. Um, <laughs> I also, this is another one I picked up. Word around the campfire is. Word around the campfire. Um, that was a good one. Uh, oh. Oh, well, allow me to retort. Like, <laughs> or. Correct the mundo. Like, there's so many. Like, Sam Jackson yeah. just nails it in this entire movie. Um, oh, uh. Hey, my name's Paul. This just between y'all. Now, the funny thing there is that line was, uh, the actor that played that character was Paul Calderon. He was originally going, uh, I think he um, went out, tried out for Vincent. Didn't get the role. Yeah. Um, or maybe it was Jules. I think, it, no, I think it was Jules. I think he was going to be cast as Jules and then Sam Jackson like came back and said, no, I'm going to do another audition and I'm going to, uh, I want the role type thing, I think. But if you remember, or maybe you don't, I don't know, but uh, towards the end of the movie, when they first come into the diner, Vincent and Jules are talking and Vincent says something about, I thought he was going to be English. Uh, and they were talking, they're referencing the wolf and Jules has oh, yeah. a line where he says, yeah, he's about as English as English Bob. That character who says, my name's Paul, this is between y'all, the bartender was originally named English Bob. Okay. But he's credited as Paul because of that line. Like for whatever reason, that's how it ended up getting credited. So it's this weird, confusing, like, spaghetti mass of just weirdness but I, I just yeah. and that that line is one of those that I use a lot when I want to just not be part of a conversation I'm like my name's Paul and this is between y'all alright <laughs> um oh what was another one uh oh Zed's dead I mean Zed's dead <laughs> this was this was one that got used a lot uh I would say after this movie came out I'm gonna get medieval on your ass <laughs> so good and for See, that, that for me would be a pretty common because I'm a big D and D player too. So mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. But, and, and it's yeah. also, it's one of those, again, he doesn't have a whole lot of lines of dialogue, but thing Rames, Yeah. thing Rames is just, he's got that voice. Yeah. He just command, he has a commanding presence about him when he speaks. So, mm -hmm. um, when you little scamps get together, you're worse than a sewing circle. I love that. I, lo I love her making fun of him and like the the uh, the gangsters gossiping because the whole yeah. <laughs> the whole story and I love how the story with Tony Rocky Horror um, kind of morphs throughout the movie. Yeah, uh, and that's great. Plus, it's got the there was the great line he had earlier on. Uh, Jules had where they're talking about him, and he's like, "Yeah, he's a big fat guy. Well, he's not fat. He's Samoan. He can't help it." Like that one always gets me. Um, he also had. Uh, what do you think? I think it's like a wax museum with a pulse. <laughs> Jackrabbit Slims. Yeah. Um, and finally, this one. Now, if you excuse me, I'm going to go home and have a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, I remember that one. That oh, was good. So good. There's so many it's more like, too. Yeah. After the events of that day, yeah, I'd probably respond <laughs> pretty much the same way. Yeah. It's like the oh. fact that he was able to hold it together for that long is impressive. I know. Ooh, <laughs> man. That was the second time you had to take her home that night, too. <laughs> Plus, yeah. the, like, the moment where Lance realizes he's on a cell phone calling him as he's driving there. 
What? Are you on a cell like, phone? I don't know who this is. I can't hear you. you. Stop calling me. Prank <laughs> call. <laughs> And that's Eric, like Eric Stoltz again. Eric Stoltz is so good in that one role. He's not in it for very much, but he's just, he had that manic energy. It's weird to think yeah. that he didn't fit as Marty McFly because he was originally cast as Marty McFly in Back to the Future. Um, yeah. Because he's got that, that energy that could have worked, but he just, he fits this so perfectly. Plus the wearing the bathrobe all the time and the long, <laughs> the long hair just worked for him. No, I just hey, uh, the way I see that is you know we're all working from home now too, so we true. can we can sympathize with that. That's true. So. That is definitely <laughs> the pandemic uh, uh, that, uniform. Yeah. That that's definitely the the work from home attire. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, definitely winter time. I'm wearing my robe a lot. I can tell you that much. Oh yeah. Um, I actually, I actually have a, a heating pad that my wife got me. That oh nice. I can just kind of lay on top of myself. It's almost like a looks almost like one of those lead line vests you get in an x-ray machine oh oh perfect but it's like a heating pad <laughs> so yeah if, if you haven't seen this movie yet first of all it's not really like a spoiler because it's there isn't these big reveals um i would say but if you haven't seen this movie yet i do recommend it i think it's a good one to watch if you have yeah. give it another watch it's worth it it's really worth watching again. yeah it, it definitely holds up even after being 27 years old and everything, it definitely holds up still. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it absolutely does. And again, it's because the writing, the directing and the pacing, keeping that pacing and having those short stories that you can kind of digest and you watch this little thing and then you can move on to something else. to where it feels like you're binge watching, you know, three episodes of a, of a TV series about random people in LA. It just works. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, Sean, thank you for coming on this week. This has been, ton of fun. Yeah. Uh, definitely, Thanks we'll have to have me. you back. You're welcome back anytime. We'll find another movie maybe you haven't seen, or maybe you'll bring I, my, me something. My goal is to try. Yeah, my goal is to try to get to find one that I've seen that you haven't. Well, it's definitely That's, possible. There are movies. There are plenty yeah. of movies I haven't seen, so um, yeah. we can make that work. Now, you, uh, where can people find you and kind of what stuff that you're working on? Let, let people right. know. Well, I'm Sirenex uh, on Twitter. S e a r a n e x. I'm also uh, been streaming lately. I'll try to stream usually about three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday nights. Uh, I have three little girls, so I have to wait until they go to bed before I uh, before I can start streaming. So it's usually around 9.15 or so that I start up. Uh, but that's uh, twitch.tv slash Serenex as well. All right. Excellent. Well, um, I've got... Uh... We've got October coming up, and I've actually got some fun stuff coming uh, for October um, that I am looking forward to. Uh, I've got, uh, once again, we're going to do things like the anthology, horror anthology, horror comedy, um, all that all that fun stuff. But next week, uh, my guest is going to be, let me find my list here. Um, my guests are the hosts of the Haven't Seen It podcast. Uh which sounds vaguely familiar to me, and I'm not sure yeah, why. Much, yeah. Um, but uh, they haven't seen The Birdcage, and I love The Birdcage. It might be my favorite Robin Williams movie. Uh, okay. Not necessarily my favorite performance, although it's up there, but my favorite movie of his. And I have some personal um, connections to this as well of things that happen in my life around this movie. So... I'm really looking forward to that. But that's next week. I'm going to be talking about the yeah. birdcage. Uh, so you're going to want to come back and, and enjoy that. And if you want to 
hang out in the chat like JF Dubow, uh, Ace, Phil Rude, Amy's been in there, Danny Ora, um, and, and kind of yell at me while I'm recording. Uh, be like Ace and tell me I need to watch the West Wing every week. She'll, and she will continue to tell me that until I watch the West Wing. Uh, you can do that. I stream this show live on Sunday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, twitch.tv slash TV's Travis, if you haven't come by and watched live. Um, the show is available anywhere podcasts are. Uh, the easiest way to find it is tvstravis.com. And if you can leave a rating and review on whatever podcast platform of your choice, that does help the show become more discoverable, especially on places like Apple Podcasts where uh, – you know, people that maybe you, that you can't spread word of mouth to, they can find it and become makes the show easier to to find, so that uh, we can take the haven't seen it podcast and um, and put them below us because we're we're better. Well, we'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out. Uh, so next, there. yes, a- absolutely. I mean, there's there's plenty of room. Um, but yeah, next week is the birdcage. So uh, once again, thank you, Sean, for being on. This has been wonderful. Uh, yeah. We will definitely have you back. Awesome. I look forward to it. So remember to enjoy your movies, everybody. And um, hey, look, the world's crazy, but let's be excellent to each other. Okay. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>